Coffee Pods, welcome. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for updates on the topics we discuss in the episode that occurred after recording. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And this month's episode, we're just going to be having a little bit of a chat, a little bit of a catch up. How are you doing, Karen? I'm all right. I feel like it's March 16th, Tuesday night. So that's the the date of the news that we're describing. And I think that'll help give us a little bit of uh, some context for what we'll be talking about tonight. But I'm also, I feel like there's a lot of people talking about hitting a pandemic wall. And I don't know when I haven't been hitting a pandemic wall, but I definitely am. (laughs) You? I'm definitely feeling the pandemic wall, but I'm also feeling somewhat hopeful because a lot of my friends and family are getting vaccinated. That's making me very happy. The more I hear about that and the weather, well, it's been weird. It was really nice and then it was freezing cold. I think it's like sleeting or hailing right now, but hopefully it'll be nice. I'm looking forward to all the outdoor things that made me a little bit nervous last summer, but I'm really looking forward to them this year, like, you know, outdoor concerts or outdoor dining or whatever. Definitely looking forward to that. So I kind of wanted to do like a couple of quick book reviews, if that was okay. Yeah, I'm so jealous of your reading list. (laughs) Some of these I listened to uh, audiobook, but the first one that I did not listen to, because if you can, you you need to look at it, Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Brosh. Long-awaited follow-up to her first book, and it was so good, and it made me laugh so much. Yeah, it's, it's comic books, but it's really a memoir. And she talks about all I kinds of issues. Ali Brosh. Like the all the things is, yes. is one of her comics. <laughs> and then also her most famous one was the one about dogs don't understand moving. Yes. So Solutions and Other Problems was supposed to come out in like 2016. It came out October of last year and it is so good. I recommend it so much. There's one story in there about cross-country skiing and bananas. And I laughed like so hard. I cried. It was amazing. Uh, I can't give any more away, <laughs> but it was, it was so funny. All right. And then another book that I listened to was Wandering in Strange Lands by Morgan Jerkins. And it's about a woman who tries to find the history of her family in the Great Migration and the things that she learns about American history and African-American history. And it really, I kind of thought, you know, it was just going to be about the Great Migration. And I kind of wanted to learn more about that topic since I read this book called White Rage by Carol Anderson. I feel like that's something that I should know more about when um, lots of Black people starting in the 1920s started to move from the Southern United States to the Northern United States. And it's about those things, but it's also about like communities that exist in places like Louisiana that have been there for like a century or more and like have their own culture. And it's about the relationship between Black Americans and Indigenous tribes and which ones like have lots of Indigenous roots. And it gave me kind of a new perspective on American history in that if it's covered in your history class at all, it's like the Great Migration was this period of time from the 20s to the 60s and Black people moved up to the North. And that's the thing that happened. But her book made me kind of rethink that, that it's a thing that's still happening because then you get like in the seventies and eighties, you get ideas about like the suburbs and white flight 
that the suburbs grew because white people were racist and redlining and they, they wanted to move out. But now it's almost like a switch, like white people are moving back to the cities and black people are moving to the suburbs. And from what she wrote in the book, it seems like the great migration kind of continues, that there's really like a direct line in the story about race and how people move in this country and, and where they live and, and why. I found that just fascinating. That is fascinating. I definitely recommend that one, uh, Wandering in Strange Lands. And then the next one, both of these I listened to on audiobook. It's called Sisters in Hate, American Women on the Front Lines of White Nationalism by Seward Darby. And it's like, why do white women join these white nationalist movements? And she mainly profiles three women who joined these movements. One who left is no longer involved in that and is, you know, trying to help get other people out and has converted to Islam and is living a completely different life. And two who are, are still involved. One who was very involved in the feminist movement, who studied women's studies, then kind of became an activist for like natural birth and like breastfeeding. And then from there, she went kind of like anti-vax and became a Mormon. And then from there, jumped into white nationalism. It was really interesting to see like how these women became radicalized because from what I understood of how these groups work in America, I didn't think they recruited women. I thought that they were just like militias and they mainly recruited men. And the women who came along were either their wives or their daughters or their family members who just kind of got brung along for the ride. Like I know that, that white women are incredibly racist, but I did not realize how important they were to these specific groups, to, to organizing them, to recruiting people, to propping them up, to doing the social media, to the, doing the blogs and the podcasts and the Instagrams. It wasn't really in the book, but Karen, you and I were just talking earlier today about watching some cottagecore video. And I'm like, oh, but is she a Nazi? Like the one I was watching was not, but that's definitely a thing. Something that Sam Cedar said was that, you know, his daughter had told him that she had started watching a makeup channel. And then after the second or third video, all of a sudden it started being about white nationalism and she turned it off. But I was mistaken. I kind of thought they mainly targeted young white boys and white teenage boys, but they target girls and, and young women too. And that was kind of scary to me. That's pretty terrifying. I definitely feel like, you know, as a culture, we definitely let kids watch YouTube because our lives are busier than they've ever been. You know, you need dual earners to raise children, but who watches the kid? Everyone's exhausted at night. <laughs> so the idea that you can't walk away at all it's interesting to me because I want to really talk about the issue at hand, which is the way women move within white nationalism and the way that women are involved in recruitment and getting recruited. But I also feel very strongly in hearing about this, about how content moderation and a lack of content moderation on platforms like YouTube or Reddit or Twitter how these things perpetuate a society that is impossible to live in, you know? <laughs> like, it is just not possible to watch every second of a YouTube intended for a child as an adult. <laughs> it's just not possible. And with proper content moderation, which is like such a big part of how we particularly met on the internet around content moderation and a lack thereof making an internet environment intolerable. This is still a persistent concern and frustration for however long it's been since YouTube was created. 
that they still don't have a way to prevent your kid from getting radicalized into white nationalism when they just wanted to figure out how to do a winged liner, you know? Yeah, 100%. And, you know, for people who don't know, Karen and I met on Shit Reddit Says. So a wonderful friendship and creative partnership came out of the most horrible website on the internet, or one of. We'll be talking about another one in a little bit. Well, um, I mean, also my entire, like, academic career came out of internet friends. That's true. <laughs> so Yeah, no, I mean, you it's know. It's a great platform, if only it were well moderated. You're 100% right. And I think that when people say like, oh, social media was a mistake, it's hard for me to say that it was a net negative. I don't necessarily think that it was a net positive. To me, it feels like a net neutral, not to make too much of a pun there, but I, I think that lots of good things have come from the internet and lots of bad things. Oh my it's gosh, it, I just got it. <laughs> net neutrality, because the net is net neutral, yes. So, you know, that book was fascinating to me. If I were to talk to the author, I'd want to know more about kind of the contradictions, how these women resolve the contradictions of being so active and so supportive in a movement that is very misogynist. Like one of the women like kind of resolved it by leaving. <laughs> but <laughs> that doesn't count. <laughs> right. But the thing is that the main purpose of white women is to make more babies to make more white babies. Why should they have time for like podcasts or Instagrams? And like some of the commenters said that and some of them were like, well, I want a trad wife who can do it all, who can like raise my white babies and also have time for political activism or whatever. But I kind of feel like they need to answer this question. I think it's really important. I like, maybe it's a gotcha, but I don't think so. It's an inherent contradiction. And like, you know, I've said before that no person is an ideology because people are human beings and ideologies are things that we believe in and things that we use, but people are, are separate from ideologies that we might aspire to. But I, I want to know more about how they resolve these contradictions and also not to get too graphic, but a lot of their most virulent racism is Islamophobic, is anti-immigrant, they center it around these ugly ideas about like immigrants are coming to rape the white women, blah, blah, blah. And that's why they justify it. They're like, well, I need protection as a white woman from these, these men that are coming to get me. And I think that that's bullshit, not only because like, it's not true, but also because like, if you're ascribing to this whole ideology, not only are you a white nationalist, but you're subscribing to an ideal of society that's run by like nuclear white families and the man is in charge. And not all of them are Christian, some of them are, but many of them are pagan or neo-pagan because they feel like Christianity like leads to multiculturalism and being too nice and stuff like that. But it's definitely a misogynist ideology. And if your whole thing is like, feminism is bad because men are better, especially white men, like white men are better, then why do you have a right to be a leader in a movement? Why should you complain about domestic violence or assault at all? If you're a woman, you shouldn't have any say in what men do or what men do to you. That's the sticking point. And I'm being really cruel here and I'm being really mean. And there are meaner ways to say what I just said, but like, it's a question. I, could, I wish you as a listener could hear my face right now. <laughs> my, my issue is not that you're being yeah. too mean. Yeah. <laughs> my but you issue understand what I'm saying? is that you expect an ism to make logical sense <laughs> you know like I don't think you're being mean I think 
Well, I think I am being mean because I don't think anybody like deserves to be abused or whatever. And like, and I didn't hear you think people deserve to be abused. No, no. I just but, hear yeah. you saying like it's logically inconsistent to hold these two thoughts at the same time. I hear you saying you should not be misogynistic. I don't hear you saying you don't deserve to complain about misogynistic violence. <laughs> right, right. And she did ask one of the women about white supremacists who had been accused of domestic violence. She said something like, well, I've heard that guy's an asshole, but who's to say what goes on in someone else's marriage? Like, maybe he did it, maybe he didn't. That was not an answer, I feel like. Just too smug by half. And then the other thing that this book brought up to me was really interesting that kind of made me think about just politics in general right now, right? One of the final chapters in the book is about a neighborhood where one of these white supremacists moves to with her husband and her neighbors like find out and they get like a little freaked out and they like have a meeting like, what do we do like Nazis are moving in? And they kind of decide not to do anything. And some of them put up like hate has no home here signs or whatever, but they realize there's nothing really they can do about it. As I was listening to this, I was taking a walk in a neighborhood on Long Island where many, many, many people voted for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I remember where all the Trump signs were in that neighborhood. I just had the thought like, well, what's the difference, right? (laughs) Would you have this conversation if Trump voters were moving in? Why or why not? You know, and I struggle with that. Is that a false equivalence or not? That's a can of worms that I am not ready to open. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Tell us on Twitter. (laughs) Please at me. So I have no say in in who moves in around me, even indirectly. I don't have the nuance to engage with it, (laughs) you know, because it's not something I've thought about before, which is part of why I don't want to open it up. But definitely at Mish Cherry Pie. And at Femme Coffee Pod. (laughs) And Femme Coffee Pod. Tell me why I'm wrong or why I'm right. Either way. (laughs) Change um, my mind. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Debate me. <laughs> Debate me. <laughs> Another thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, but I think people are going to be talking about this for a very long time, was the Oprah interview with Harry and Meghan. I've only seen the memes. I okay. don't have There's some great whatever memes. streaming service you need to have to be able to watch it. I think it's Paramount Plus. If you, if you go, so if you go to cbs.com, mm-hmm. you can watch it with commercials. Oh, really? Yeah. If you, you don't have to put your provider in? I don't know. I don't think. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Definitely, if you have cable, you can watch it with commercials. But I know that people were watching it overseas. So maybe if you have a VPN or something. Hey, do you have one of those VPNs? Well, can you sponsor our podcast? Because we're just plugging you right now. <laughs> VPN companies sponsor our podcast. But that's a whole separate conversation. But there was a thread of British and other European people watching the interview early on American television or going on and watching it on CBS because it aired in America on a Sunday night and it aired in the UK on a Monday night. So people who wanted to watch it like that Monday morning all logged in and went to cbs.com or whatever and watched the commercials and they had never seen American commercials before. So that part I'm aware of is people tweeting about seeing pharmaceutical commercials for the first time. Yeah, the the fast food commercials and the pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. commercials were absolutely astounding to non-Americans. And I feel like it was a cultural exchange. We were learning about the racism and imperialism of their monarchy and they were learning about how fucked up our country is. It was, you know, it was a learning experience on both sides of the ocean. Although I feel, I feel like The Crown is also doing a lot. I started watching The Crown. I felt that it was portraying specifically the Queen Elizabeth II as far more sympathetic than I think she probably actually is in real life. But 
she's a diplomat and she's good at that but they really portrayed her as really having difficulty making decisions and saying no to people that she ultimately made and like deflected onto her handlers in a lot of ways that I imagine there really is no way to know whether or not that was the case and paints her in a very sympathetic light for some of the more harsh choices that she's made. Uh, Harry said the same thing in the interview that like when they were working out the details of like moving to kind of part-time diplomacy work or whatever they do she said come over and we'll discuss it and stay the weekend and then like that Friday morning came and he got a phone call saying you can't come see your grandma sorry and then he talked to her later and she was like I had things on my calendar I didn't know were there and Oprah was like but can't the queen do what she wants to do because she's the queen and Harry was just like no I think that was in like the deleted scenes that's the other thing so if they're on the CBS Twitter account and they might be on YouTube and they're on definitely on Paramount Plus. There was like extras that didn't make it in because she was talking to them for hours and it was only like a 90 minute special. But she put out some extra scenes the next day. But, but it yeah, also, it was bizarre to I me. I wanted to say The Crown. Yeah. Where is that going besides making Elizabeth II seem sympathetic more so than I suspect she is? I feel like that was kind of for all of them. The show makes them more sympathetic than it seems like they probably are. On the show, all the characters hate and it's just like I just like not outwardly but like hate the trappings of Klaus but we know that's not true that that's not really the case and like even with the clearly sympathetic sheen they're all assholes like all of them come off as assholes I don't know if that's the goal of the show but like at least for me as a viewer I'm like wow fuck these people Yeah, you know, fuck and people fuck I, their handlers, fuck their government, fuck everything about them, fuck them. <laughs> like, yes, they're human. Yeah. I am sympathetic to the humanity in the story. And I love the characters as individual people, and I want for them to be their best selves. But like, my God, <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> yeah, I had I had that moment while I was watching the interview when they're talking about the first time Megan met the queen, Harry had like a little freak out and was like, but do you know how to curtsy? And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, isn't that just like for formal meetings, like on TV, like when she's on the throne, he was like, no, you have to curtsy like every time you meet her. She's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, but she's the queen. And me, like I had always thought of her as a politician, as a diplomat, as a head of state. And if you meet someone... You know, that's like the polite thing to do. Like I had a Zoom meeting with my state senator and I was like, hello, senator, how are you? You know, I'm going to be like, hey, you know, just by the first name or whatever, you're going to be respectful. So I kind of thought that that's what it was. And then Megan kind of thought it was more like, you know, when you're in a fancy restaurant and you see a celebrity, you don't like freak out and bother them at their dinner. But the idea is not like an American idea of like leave celebrities alone at their dinner or be respectful to someone who's an elected official it's beyond that they actually think that the monarchy makes them better people and that's when I was like well fuck that you know that, that's kind of when it, it got weird to me because like a lot of people were like complaining about Joe Biden's inauguration and said we shouldn't have done anything because even though we scaled it back because of COVID and people are like why do we even do this and I kind of feel like ritual is important to people. That's not important to everyone, but I think in general, ritual is important. I think it's meaningful to a lot of people. And I I think it's a a celebration of not this time peaceful, but it's a celebration of the transition of power. 
which is still, you know, a unique thing in human history. But learning a kind of about what the monarchy actually means kind of to me makes American inaugurations more special because it is a representation of what the people want and not just who someone happened to be born to. You know, I hadn't really reflected on it that way, but we've gotten very far afield. That's okay. So <laughs> there was just what two, was at two, the heart two, of the Megan and Harry. Two, two more takeaways on the, on the interview and then we can move on to something else. One of them was the racism thing. Obviously the big bombshell was. <laughs> oh, really? The um, racism thing? So yeah. You took that away from there? Kind of, kind of a big one. Not just what they said, but what they didn't say. I think it was really important to kind of read between the lines because like what they said was someone in the royal family said you know is the kid going to come out black right and that's shocking and that's horrible that's disgusting yeah no it is it is but i don't know about shocking but it's it's extremely disgusting no i, I know people <laughs> like, were shocked fucking but... nasty yeah but like upper class british people being racist is not shocking to me that's true <laughs> let me put it that way that's true <laughs> No, it wasn't, it wasn't that surprising, I guess, now that you mentioned it. Like I've said before on this podcast, like my dad's Latino and my mom's white. And like, as far as he knows, there's like no black people in his family. But when my mom was pregnant, they were like, ask your husband if the baby's going to come out black. Like that's definitely a thing in like mixed race families. Yeah. The white people did say that. So like, I was like, oh, that happened to my family. Like, oh, okay. Like, (laughs) so anyway, that's definitely a thing. And it's, it's still a thing, but they kept talking about we don't have security. We don't have security. And at first I was kind of like, well, you quit the job, you you lose the perks. But then I was thinking more about it. Like, why are they so concerned with security? Why do they think the baby's not safe? Is it just because they're random rich people? And then I was like, no, no, there are people that want to kill them because they think that they polluted the bloodline of the royal family. Like they have these white supremacist ideas and white supremacist ideas about the monarchy and who should and shouldn't be a royal, there are terrorist people who are so committed to this that they're gonna try to kill that family and those kids. And that's why they need the security. And they didn't come out and say this, but it was really clear because Harry says something about the threat is the same. And I'm like, what threat? Like who's trying to kill the queen? Like this is, this is James Bond or something. And I was like, no, it's the racists. It's the white supremacist terrorists. They're the ones who are, who are trying to kill Harry and Meghan and their kids. And it's horrible. And it's not just like a random rich person who wants to live in a gated community. There's a legitimate threat on their lives because of white supremacy. And I wish that that was kind of more of the takeaway other than like someone said something garbagely racist. Like the bigger threat of violence is still there and it's still important. And you had to really pay attention to see that. This I think will thematically kind of connect to some of the things that we talk about later, but there's some plausible deniability. It makes sense, like you leave the job, you lose the perks. Like you said, it's exactly like it is for everyone else. No special protections for people kind of thing where I feel as though that's a theme that will come up. But I do also, just I just want to trace back to where you said that family history and I just mm-hmm. am really angry still I'm still yeah. really mad yeah <laughs> I'm mad at, at your family yeah I'm sorry yeah. I understand <laughs> on your behalf at least mm-hmm. so sorry for that that's okay <laughs> common thing um, if you're you know mixed ethnicity person to have stuff like yeah that yeah 
I'm going to just kind of process my feelings around that in my own time and not put that on you. I want to I want to say like, one more thing about the misogyny which is clearly racialized misogyny mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. Meghan Markle, but I think what I really admired about her is that she really tried and like lots of people are really trying, lots of white women are really trying to prevent this from being a story of pitting two women against each other. The idea that it's like Megan versus Kate is kind of stupid and harmful. There's this thing in the tabloids about right before the wedding, she made Kate cry and Oprah was like, what was that about? And she was like, it was the opposite. We got into an argument. Kate said something rude. It hurt my feelings and I cried. And the next day she wrote me a letter and she sent me flowers and apologized and I forgave her. And because I forgave her, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm just going to say she said something to me that hurt my feelings and she apologized and accepted the apology and we've moved on. And I felt like that was so mature and healthy, especially on Megan's part, but on Kate's part too, because some people don't know how to apologize. Everyone doesn't have the money to send flowers when they mess up, but to write a letter and to to make a heartfelt apology is a skill that does not really exist in our culture as much as it should. And to see two people acting like adults. And honestly, like if you're having a wedding, emotions are running high and people say dumb things and people hurt each other's feelings and they argue about the most trivial of things because it's an extremely emotional time. So it seemed like just like a, such a normal and healthy thing. And people are like, oh, cat fight. But that's not what it was like at all. Like I thought it was a really good example yeah, this is, of how this people kind of should like be. kind of like the thing that happens in everyone's family. Like, I don't understand. Like <laughs> you and your, your sister-in-law get into an argument and then get over it it's not that weird it's not a cat fight Mm-mm. especially but if one person apologized like ex- that's good extremely if one person apologizes yeah and the other person forgives yeah and I mean some of that is just like public figure nonsense mm-hmm. and like tabloid nonsense but again it is this racialized misogynist nonsense you mm-hmm. know yeah it's still important to name the kind of nonsense that it is so oh I'm yeah happy. Yeah, 100%. So as we say, we are from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. And we've frequently talked about the dick measuring contest that is mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio versus governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo. And as it stands, it's really a race to see who we can like the least. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know who I like the least right now. Uh, As it stands, I think it's eight women have accused. Let me see. Let me look this up first. At least. I thought it was nine, but I'm, I'm it not. It might be. Kidding. Like, I can't keep track. The, the exact number is really not the deciding factor. For Correct. <laughs> there are many. There are many ac- accusations of sexual harassment against Andrew Cuomo, which go from things that he said to groping and, you know, unwanted kissing types of assault. And this is on top of the cover-up of the nursing home scandal with COVID. The nursing home scandal that led to the death of thousands of people. I feel like we, I feel like just say the nursing home scandal doesn't capture like people. I thought thought people knew, but yeah. And he didn't report it and he didn't give people the opportunity to bring their loved ones home for their own safety. Mm -hmm. And there's a lack of, uh, vaccination of incarcerated people who are extremely high risk in close quarters mm-hmm. even after the federal government suggested doing it 
I just wanted to make a quick Sorry. timeline though, and I wanted to say a couple of things. Like obviously the the, the nursing like home cover up. No, 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 it's okay. The <laughs> nursing home cover up thing started last year around this time. So Lindsay Boyland is running for Manhattan Borough President, and in November, I believe she said that she accused Andrew Cuomo of, of sexual harassment, and she did not go into details. Then recently, I believe it was in February, State Senator Ron Kim talked about how Andrew Cuomo gave him a bullying, threatening phone call for speaking out about the nursing home cover-up. After that happened, Mayor Bill de Blasio said, many people in New York have received similar phone calls. And after that happened, Boylan came back and gave the details of the harassment and the unwanted kisses. And after that happened, more women came forward. So that's the timeline. And if you think that this is some kind of Thing by Vladimir Putin, you are 100% wrong. And you need to go back and look at that timeline. I'm so angry that people think that. Like, what's wrong with you? I'm sorry. But if you look at the timeline, that doesn't make sense. Because unless you think that like Ron Kim and Bill de Blasio are in on it, it, that's senseless. And unless you think that Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul and Attorney General Tish James are going to pardon Trump somehow, also doesn't make sense. Any scandal to pardon Trump would have to take down Hochul and James. And as far as I know, nothing bad has ever been said about them as of, you know, 8.27 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on, on March 16, 2021. Nothing credible. Right. Nothing <laughs> credible. definitely internet trolls. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no, yes. They could lead <laughs> like, to I need them to losing, their, I can't help it. losing their offices or whatever. And so there's no evidence that this has anything to do with Russia when people talk about the timing is suspicious, it's not suspicious. What happened was Ron Kim was talking about being bullied. Bill de Blasio said, yeah, he's a bully. And then Lindsay Boylan said, this is how he bullied me in a sexual way at my job. And I feel like it's completely consistent. And it really makes sense that this is how the people spoke up. I had a conversation with a friend, an older, like a boomer white guy. And he asked me, he was like, said, he said, as a liberal woman, what do you think about these allegations? And I said, they fit with what we know about Governor Cuomo and his character. We know that he disbanded the Moreland Commission as soon as they went to investigate him. Look that up if you don't know about it. And we know that he's a bully. And many people have said that he's a bully. And now we have all these women making accusations of sexual harassment. It's all consistent with his character of someone who's controlling and someone who's secretive and someone who's a bully. And he didn't like that answer from me. He said something his like- dad was a bully. Like we know this. <laughs> I know, I know. He said, you know, I think a lot of men are just get very sensitive about unless it's a very violent assault, they get very worried. Like, well, I hugged my coworker when I said Merry Christmas. Is that sexual harassment? Like, no, it's not. Like, <laughs> I used to work in an office where, you know, people did hug occasionally. And it, I understand why that would make some people feel uncomfortable, but it was fine. Like, and I think, and people picked up on who did not like that and who didn't because people had pretty good emotional intelligence and we're reading body language and stuff like that. And but um, this is like the reading between the lines that we're talking about. This is the hiding bad behavior and plausible deniability again, you know, very similar because this guy behaves in a way that sounds like the defense of someone who has very clearly not behaved that way 
<laughs> he's nervous about himself instead of being like, okay, I can hug my coworkers and that's fine. No one has literally ever complained about that. But I mean, did you hug your coworker with an erection? <laughs> Because that's what Andrew Cuomo has been accused of doing. <laughs> it's different. They're just two different things. Right. No, I know. There's a, it's really only one thing about it that's different, mm -hmm. but it's the important thing about I, it I that is different. No, I think. The so. erection. Right. And I think some people get upset because they want there to be rules. And there are rules. Like, read the EEOC. Go back and take your sexual harassment training. There are people who will explain this to you. But there's also a level, I think, of emotional intelligence and learning to read people's body languages. And if you don't know, ask. You can just say, is it okay if I hug you? And then if they say yes, then you're not harassing them. So that's where I am. And I'm frustrated that it's the current year and um, men are still very fragile about this. But again, it goes back to, you know, talking about white supremacist women oh well what i it's not my place to comment what goes on within someone else's marriage mm -hmm. but isn't it if it's abuse but if it's not fitting with the concepts that you have it's really hard for for people to be reflective and so you can really project your own conception of things speaking of which <laughs> It being Tuesday the 16th, I got a message from you this afternoon asking if I had listened to the latest Savage Love podcast. You know, Dan Savage is kind of like notably problematic fave, but uh, I like his style at times, but we were talking about how in the opening monologue today, it really got away from him and really revealed some of his really deep limitations and I guess what I'm gonna bring here is like a theme between my two like pieces what I bring to today's conversation is just kind of a, a lack of nuance around transgender issues and transphobia from popular cisgender media people <laughs> who are known for their kind of debate rigor, the academic rigor of their debate style, but the limitation of the cis perspective kind of undermining both of their kind of academic rigorousnesses. <laughs> so to start with Dan Savage, the opening monologue, um, he, was talking about something called super straights as a meme. I discovered this through a bunch of tweets about how people don't wanna hear about super straights. <laughs> and I was like, oh no. <laughs> There's definitely trolling going on. And until talking to you, I, I was really unclear in which direction the trolling was going. Like, was it transphobes trolling? trans people? Was it non-transphobes trolling both trans people and transphobes, which we'll get to in more nuance later? Or was it trans people trolling straight cis people? 
like I couldn't tell I was just like there's definitely trolling going on in here but it's like so absurd that I really have a hard time telling which trolling is going on started on 4chan which is the other worst website on the internet that I was referring to previously well you know there's there's worse now we could talk to Lindsay Dayerstein about that even more But anyway, super straights, according to my internet search, which is limited, and my listening to Dan Savage's opening monologue, super straights are cishet people who are not attracted to trans people. I'm going to text you a picture that um, I don't think we can or should read. But this is the original post from 4chan. And you can see that the super straight flag is actually a Nazi flag. Like it says SS on it. And the SS is like in a Nazi font. I see. Okay, so it's very explicitly transphobic. But like so transphobic that it makes transphobes look terrible. And so that's why it was very difficult for me to tell the direction of the troll. Oh, okay. Like it was just such an extreme that it was just like, okay, like you're annoying heterosexual people. Like they said that their goal is to create leftist infighting, right? And that's kind of almost what Dan Savage did. No, I think Dan Savage- He took it too seriously, I think. I don't know. So Dan Savage is opening monologue. There's an assertion that no one asked. There's the assertion that there's more pressing issues for trans people than whether or not cishets are attracted to them. There was the assertion that the idea of not being attracted to trans people comes from what Dan Savage calls toxic allies. There's an assertion that we painted ourselves into this own corner by saying that all sexual orientations are protected classes as an LGBT community. And then there's like an assertion around trans people not saying that people saying they're not attracted to trans people is transphobic. And then there's also like randomly throwing in some ace phobia that the ace and demisexual people are not sexual orientations or they are sexual orientations and that's a bad thing and they shouldn't be. It's really unclear exactly why he threw that in other than to say like clearly he doesn't believe they're a thing (laughs) or deserve the same dignity as as, I guess cis gay men in the gay rights movement. But a cis gay man could be demisexual. He's just confusing a lot of things. Well yeah and so here's the place where I see Dan Savage's inability to get out of his own perspective as undermining himself because even when I say cis gay man, I mean a cis gay man like Dan Savage, you know, Mm -hmm. specifically, like collapsing the categories into stereotypes. And so there's like so, so much to unpack in there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to kind of come out of the gate and say, trans people do have way bigger fish to fry right now, but it is also coming at us from all sides. And just because some sides are not as hugely impactful does not mean that trans people do not get to focus their energies on the things that concern them in this moment. So we're just going to throw that little assertion into its package. So if you did care about this, (laughs) saying you're not attracted to trans people 
despite your sexual orientation is transphobic. Because A of all, no one asked you. <laughs> but also, if you say, I'm attracted to men, but no, not that man, or no, not that kind of man, that's fine. But if you say, no, not this one oppressed class of man, that's suspect. <laughs> well, I suspect that what we know about matching on Tinder for racial and ethnic minorities is not the result of each individual person who has swiped left on any Black woman's personal misogynoir, but the fact that Black women are not getting swipes is the result of structural racist misogyny. And so to go out of your way to clarify that you're not attracted to trans people, it adds to that milieu. It adds to the social acceptability of rejecting trans people's gender identity as valid. And to be a gay person and to define sex by penis penetration to me seems like such a lost opportunity. Like narrow definitions of sex are for the cishets. Let them have their very boring PIV sex and we get to have all the cool fun ways of getting off that aren't necessarily PIV. Like That's why would you limit thing, yourself though, when you get to be queer? You don't have to. <laughs> Dan, free yourself. <laughs> He's always telling straight people that. Like that's and his yet whole thing. He is defining his gayness <laughs> by the presence of a cis penis. That it's isn't. I never thought of the like curve. the thing there because he's always telling like straight people to reconsider. Like it doesn't have to be PIV every time. Like that's exactly. like become his signature advice to straight people. And like that's interesting. I think there's like a line between like what people do and what people say. Like no one's saying you have to go out and sleep with someone you don't want to. But like, if you go out and broadcast it, that's when it's like, why are you doing that? Right. And so I could see the disingenuous argument. Well, how come you have your gay pride flag, but I can't have my Nazi super straight flag? To which I would respond. <laughs> uh, what we were talking about earlier, which is, Almost every sexual orientation flag or pride is about who you are attracted to. The whole point of pride is having pride in an identity that has been ostracized or marginalized. The idea of having pride in being the dominant identity or the dominant culture is again, supremacist. <laughs> it's really not the same and not just because it feels icky there's a qualitative difference like if you are dominant you don't really need to assert your pride as loudly you just don't and dan savage has talked about this he used to do back in the day like i've been reading him for oh my god 21 years now 
he used to have at the bottom of his column straight rights watch because back in the day, well, I mean, you know, there's still places mm -hmm. in the U.S. and I mean, it's not only straight yes. people or cis people who get abortions, but talking about, you know, abortion access and access to contraception. And before Lawrence v. Texas, sodomy was illegal even for straight people. Like it didn't get enforced. Like it did for gay people, but there and were like places the definition where, of sodomy is like anything but PIV too. Right. Yeah. Like oral hilarious. sex or, or anal sex among straight people. Like was it's not just illegal. <laughs> yeah. Was considered illegal. Besides PIV. Right. Exactly. It was, it was considered illegal in, in many states. It wasn't enforced against straight people, maybe in mm -hmm. like a custody case or a divorce or something like that. But like you'd point that out. You know, we know it's a 4chan meme, but something that some of my friends on Reddit have taught me is that doing something ironically is still doing it. If you say something hateful, you're, you're, even if you like don't mean it or if it's a joke, you're still, you still did that thing. You know, I think my example was like Paul Hollywood or, or Prince Harry dressing up as Nazis. Like you still did it, even though you said it was a Halloween costume or something. Like don't do that. Don't make a Nazi straight flag. But also like... If you are a straight person who's not attracted to trans people, I invite you to explore why that is. I invite you to explore why you think you know who is trans and who is not and which ones you're attracted to. Just because I suspect there are trans people you are attracted to without realizing it. <laughs> that would be my guess. I don't know you personally, but like, you don't know. You can't clock everybody. Like some people are just more private about whether or not they're trans. See, this is where my subjectivity comes in because I've never had like a genital or gender preference in my attractions. There's a part of me that's like, how could you say you don't like something without trying it first? You know, I don't understand what it's like to, to be born knowing, like, I don't understand monosexuality in any way. I just can't. I don't get it. It's really hard for me to understand. In mm -hmm. fact, for a long time, I thought, and I think this will tie in actually pretty neatly into our next conversation, but for a long time, I really thought that sexuality, like, was a choice hmm. for people but just like there was a leaning more one way or the other, like a, a Kinsey scale where everyone's in the middle with some slight variation, like a Kinsey scale that looks like a bell curve, you know, mm. <laughs> where we're all in the middle and only gay and straight people are at the extremes, but like people who feel, I want to say super straight or super gay, but by that I mean people who have never felt any same sex or opposite or other sex attraction, mm -hmm. but like I really thought for most people, it was like, well, I lean mostly this way. So this is how I'm going to live my life. And when I learned that that was just like a total lie and they knew it because they did not choose to be straight, I was like so much more angry. <laughs> it was just like, wait, but you didn't choose to be like straight. So how can you say it's a choice? Like you didn't choose it. You were just born that way. Like this is just how you have always known yourself to be. This is how you identify. It's so weird to me. <laughs> like, how can you say it's a choice for someone else if, it's an, if you know it's not for you? Right. <laughs> it's so funny to me. Anyway, mm -hmm. that blew my mind. Anyway, I've gotten very far afield myself. <laughs> That's okay. 
Did you, did you um, want to talk about the other cis person that's being transphobic? Well, this is not somebody who's who's currently transphobic as well, as much as I can tell. I forget why this came. Oh, this came up because of Jude Ellison Doyle's Substep article, but it has nothing to do with that article, which is very unfortunate for Jude. But um, so my understanding of the timeline of where this kind of three, four day internet rager. Yeah, I missed this whole be. thing. I saw something bad happened and I didn't look into it. Oh yeah. I'm a huge fan of uh, Jude Doyle. We've both been for so long, but then when, when Jude came out as trans, I was just like, hell yes. <laughs> uh, and so I got really excited and like went even like stand even harder. But anyway, <laughs> they put out a an article around Graham Linehan, whose like Twitter was suspended for hate speech. And so people who've been moderated off of platforms with highly minimal moderation for hate speech, getting cash advances to do sub stacks. But within that was also Justice Signal made it about him. He claims he's not transphobic. And then I think there may have been something about how he's creepy with trans women, which I think got like over amplified into him being a chaser, which I think then got kind of very scaled back as trans people all chastised each other for that. I can't speak to his behavior with trans women. I know that he has some issues with trans people as objects rather than subjects. And that's something that I find worse than distasteful, but I don't know if it's a sex thing for him or not. That's just not something I can speak to. But a larger part of it has been around that because that became a thing briefly in this spat. But what I do want to discuss about this besides like the playing victim of it all that he does, the I'm just curious, debate me man he does where he like is like I'm the victim of a dog pile set upon me by Jude Doyle here's his act go tell him to stop <laughs> you know just looking at his social media he has like over 82,000 Twitter followers and he has over 4,000 Patreon subscribers and he makes over $24,000 a month a so, month yeah I know and he claims to be a victim which Subscribe you know our Patreon, by the protect way. you from that, harassment yeah. but if that makes you mad, patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour. Yeah, it makes me mad. I would patronize us if I were us. <laughs> and his levels are problematic, canceled, and permabend. What an asshole. So anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Clearly, this is his shtick. And, you know, a lot of his defenders will rail against cancel culture. But my main concern about the way that he has a lot of cis subjectivity around trans issues. I'm brought back to the Atlantic cover story that opens with an anecdote about a teenager who flirted with a trans identity whose parents then cut her off from all internet access besides Instagram. She decided she was no longer trans. Which, you know, that's the, the opening anecdote. 
And it was not a story about child abuse or a story about overly controlling parents. And it doesn't go into whether or not had this teen gone through with transition, would they have then desisted? Or if this teen had gone to gender affirming care, would she have been given any sort of medical intervention? Unclear, it doesn't go into the, the speculation around that. And I think part of why it doesn't is because it doesn't really engage genuinely with expertise around trans issues. We know the standards of care. We know that even the informed consent models have in them wiggle room for clinical experience, like almost every treatment does. And the way that that's most commonly used is to delay transition. We know this, but the fear that that article stokes is what if people use that to forcibly trans non-trans kids who will later have to untrans themselves? And this is kind of similar to Abigail Shire's book, Irreversible Damage, where the, the point is, if you let kids have access to affirming care, it's always medical, it's always irreversible, and it's always damaging. She also thinks that people just become trans from watching YouTube videos. And I just don't, yes. it's not true. But, you know, if you kind of look at the people who medically transition and then desist, if your argument there is, it's a very small percentage, but those who do have a really unpleasant experience, that's not universally true either. There are some people who desist who have a very negative experience and wish they had never gone through what they did. But even that is a small percentage of the people who desist, which is a small percentage of people who are trans, which is a very small percentage of people. Mm -hmm. Much in the same way that the logic I had around choosing your sexuality isn't that it's not a choice, so it should be okay. Being gay is a decent choice and there's no nothing wrong with being gay. Being trans is a fine choice. Mm -hmm. And so the reason why I mentioned that is because if you are a trans person who hits puberty without puberty blockers, you will have irreversible damage going through puberty that you cannot undo becoming trans and getting affirming care later. So when the question is, what percentage of medically transitioning people end up regretting their medical transition versus what percentage of trans people regret having gone through natural puberty. And I, I cringe at my own use of the word natural there. Endogenous puberty. I wonder which is the bigger problem? Because if you're saying letting people become trans in ways that they may or may not be able to undo, which is again, rare, and not something that happens until adolescence and almost no one under the age of 16 is ever given cross-sex hormones. 
but only having puberty delayed, after which puberty happens if you stop. But even if you took all of what he comes out with at face value, then no one should go through puberty until they know whether or not they're trans because it's damaging. And if you think the only way to avoid becoming trans is not to see trans people, then I would argue the only way to avoid becoming cis is to not engage with media by cisgender people. <laughs> so we should all just be brains and bats until the age of 18, at which point we can then make decisions for ourselves. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. But again, this argument only works if being trans is an unfavorable outcome. And I suspect really hard that what's going on with Jesse Single is that he just cannot imagine being transgender. He just cannot imagine it. In the same way that I think a lot of historical homophobes just could not imagine people are gay get over it. Like I just really desperately wanna shake him and be like, people are trans, get over it. It's not bad. It's not necessarily, like we don't know the biological basis for being trans. We also don't know the biological basis for depression. We can treat it successfully with medical intervention for the most part. We can go into that on another day. Same for being trans. We don't know what causes it, but we can treat it. We know what makes the lives of trans people better. And that's affirming care. What affirming care means is not always cut your dick off and give you estrogen. It's not. This is not what trans people are trying to do to your children. But that's the fear that is stoked in the hearts of people or cut your uterus out and hate women. You know, those are the two stories we hear. Like cut your dick off and rape women or cut your uterus out and hate women. You know, the stereotypes are the bathroom and taking lesbians out of the world because apparently all lesbians are butch. <laughs> And also butch lesbian is indistinguishable from being a trans man. Like it's so insulting to butch women, <laughs> but whatever. And femme lesbians, there's so many insulting assumptions about it from people outside this community. And here I'm gonna talk about toxic allies to lesbians. People in lesbian communities are not as scared of these things. Isolated lesbians might be. And here's where it's very fascinating. If you're not engaged with your community and you don't know anybody, it's very hard for you to imagine their experience. And so I just, it's, I don't know, I've been ranting for a long time. Do you have comments? <laughs> yeah, I think something that cis people should question their gender and think about why, why are they cis? Just to like help understanding and stuff like that, you know? And do you think that that's something they could help single? I don't know at this point. His career is kind of based on this contrarian thing. And so I don't know. I'm not his therapist. My suggestions for him are not for his own well-being, to be honest, at this point, because the harm that he's doing goes way beyond the harm to himself. Mm -hmm. 
but for somebody who is questioning what it means to be transgender, I would ask them to ask themselves, you know, if you are a man, like, how do you know? Is it because you have a penis that you know you're a man? Is it because you have testicles that you know you're a man? Is it because of your body hair that you know you're a man? Is it because you like football that you know you're a man? How do you know which parts of it added together equal man? Or is it just something that you just know to be correct about you? What is the essence of your own gender? If you're a woman, does wearing a dress make you a woman? Does being feminine make you a woman? Does the length of your hair make you a woman? And if none of the things you do on the outside are what make you a woman, what is it that makes you a woman? Is it anything more than just knowing that's who you are? It's hard to describe what it means to be somebody. And it's really hard to figure out what makes somebody else somebody else. Sometimes there's just things about you that you just know. Because it's you. You're experiencing you. And I understand being skeptical. People say bullshit all the time. But the statistics are, are there that this is a common experience, becoming more common as it becomes more socially acceptable. And in that sense, the shearers and singles are right. Yeah, no, and then it also reminds me of, and this is something that we touched on, is that, like, you read a lot of people like uh, Abigail Schreier and stuff, and they'll say things that, to me, don't sound right. Like, they'll say something like, well, these young people aren't really trans men because they hate their bodies. All women hate their bodies, or all assigned female at birth people hate their bodies. It's normal to hate your boobs. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, there's, there's like body hate, but I find that it's not targeted at the titty area. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> like, maybe I grew up in a different time. Or maybe your titties are just perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but, but, but it's kind of like, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, have a certain ideal body type that they see in the media that that's what they want to live up to. And they might feel bad if they don't especially if they don't know about like airbrushing and stuff, which even today, a lot of people don't know. And then there's what they're talking about, which was far beyond. And to me, I don't know if this is transphobic or not, but it sounds like the whole trope about like how a lot of people who are homophobic turn out to be gay. Like this kind of sounds like that. And it's very troubling to me, like just trying to figure this out. Yeah, I, I do think that some fascination with trans people comes from, well, how do I know I'm not trans? And for some people, that will be the uh-oh moment. And for other people, it'll just be like, no, but seriously, I don't get it. <laughs> and so I don't want to project that too much onto, onto transphobes. But when they say things like that, and this came up in the ContraPoints video, her <laughs> talking about hating her body, her talking about domestic abuse and, and overgeneralizing that that must be what is going on for these trans people. It's like, actually, no, what's going on for them is something different. You did hate your body in a way that, that you're projecting onto these trans experiences or these trans narratives. So I think that that's also an aspect of it, but I'm not sure. I mean, that makes sense. Do we have predictions for what's going to happen by the time this episode airs? 
Um, I predict Cuomo will not resign. <laughs> I predict Jesse Single will get way more followers and more patrons. I predict we're gonna have more patrons. <laughs> I like that prediction. Let's end on that. <laughs> Unless yeah. you have more substantial yeah, predictions that I'm no, cutting you that, off from. That was it. That was, that's my prediction. Oh, and then more people will tweet at us and give and us their opinions. And not fucking yeah. snitch tag Jesse Single, please. He does not shut up. <laughs> so again, subscribe. No, it's, <laughs> on yes. Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or yes. Overcast. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next time. Oh, and find us online at feministcoffeehour.com and at femcoffeepod on Twitter. As of March 25th, some updates occurred regarding Media Watchdog, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, or GLADS, accountability project, which has been in existence since around 2012. This project catalogs public statements that, quote, spread misinformation and harm LGBTQ people in order to provide context for the views of commentators who are often invited to speak by media outlets about LGBTQ issues. On March 22nd, Single discovered his own entry and publicized it, pushing back that he felt the entry was based on false accusations via an article on his substack, which he then tweeted a thread about. On March 22nd, that same day, Dan Savage tweeted in defense of Single by retweeting Single's article Twitter thread, as well as tweeting at GLAD directly, telling them to retract and apologize. And then also, Dan Savage retweeted a Quillette article written by Jonathan Kay, an editor of Quillette. A brief perusal of Kay's Twitter presence includes umbrage at Scientific American's evidence-based approach to diversity and inclusion, a celebration of J.K. Rowling, and retweeting news of black-on-white violence with the comment, quote, more white supremacy, one assumes sarcastically. On March 23rd, GLAD posted, the GLAD Accountability Project was going through our internal review process and was published earlier this week before that was complete. No entries are being removed from the project, but additional profiles will be added and an official launch will be happening soon. Some of what we know about detransition narratives in the media are the ways in which political movements have used these narratives and those who've experienced them in order to make an argument against affirmative care in the same way that historically ex-gay narratives had been used. Somebody who's been doing a really great job of documenting this is Kai Shevers, and you can read Kai Shevers' work at kaishevers.medium.com. Thanks so much for staying tuned for this whole saga. It's a bit ridiculous, but here it is. Bye. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.